The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. And welcome to the final home cinema podcast of 2010. In this edition, we look back at all the displays we've reviewed in 2010, giving you the good, the bad and the ugly. And welcome along to the final podcast of 2010, uh, the home cinema edition. And I'm joined by our reviewer, Steve Withers. Hi, Steve. Hi, Phil. How you doing? Good, thanks. And uh, we've got lots to talk about. It's the end of the year, so I think basically what we should be talking about um, is the products that we've seen this year and and what we think has worked, what we think uh, was a good idea but didn't quite work out, and what was bad. Um, So let's kick things off. I guess we've got to talk about the good first. And um, what was your TV of the year? Or is it not that simple? It's, It's not that simple, unfortunately. Um, there's been some good, t- I mean, I guess um, this is my first year reviewing and uh, I started in May and since May I've, I've done in total 17 reviews and of TVs and one projector. Um, and, you know, there's been some good TVs, there's been some not so good TVs, there's been some good ideas and some not so good ideas. But um, unfortunately, it seems that almost without exception, every TV no matter how good, there always be something that isn't uh, that doesn't work on it correctly, and it's really annoying when manufacturers you know, drop the ball with the last uh, hurdle. I'm specifically thinking here about Panasonic. Uh, you know, who everyone was waiting for this year to bring out their new plasmas. You know, were they going to be better than the Kuros? And the Blacks were very good on them. You know, they were probably almost as good as the Kuro, but uh, they couldn't handle 50 hertz. Um, something that was picked up in various reviews, um, denied permanently by the, um, by, by the manufacturer until eventually they admitted to it, um, a few months ago. So, you know, those, those are kind of things which, which is unfortunate really when you think, you know, that, uh, a TV's, you know, got all these great things going for it and then they just drop the ball at the last hurdle. Same thing with LG really with the, uh, LE8900, you know, they, they put the, the backlight, the LED, the LED backlight behind the TV. So you didn't have the hot spotting and 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 the and the uneven un, you know, uniformity of the of the backlight that, that plagues a lot of these very ultra thin displays. But in order to get it that thin, they had to put the backlight really close to the panel, which ultimately resulted in some banding when they had uh, horizontal pans. So once again, a great TV that just dropped the ball at the last hurdle there, unfortunately. Now that may be improved when we get to see the nano TVs. Um, hopefully at CES in, in January, um, where the, the idea is they put this uh, film between the uh, between the backlight and the panel, which hopefully should reduce the uh, any any banding of problems and also improve the, uh, the haloing that that TV also suffered from from from, um, from localized dimming. The, the LG PX990, and once again, um, the world's first THX certified 3D display, fantastic uh, TV in, in review, and then had a whole host of production problems by the looks of it based upon the feedback from uh, forum members. So once again, you know, you kind of like, you, you produce a great TV, but then you go and screw it up on the on the production, which is a real shame. Other other TVs, oh, well, um, Sim 2, um, this projector to use LED um, to uh, instead of a lamp, you know, and, and you know, brilliant. Uh, can turn it on and off in, in a second, but they ship it, um, you know, where it's clipping massively because they set the video levels wrong in, in the factory. Um, so, you know, you, when you're paying 16,000 pounds for a projector, uh, you really expect them to, be able to set that correctly before it goes out of the out of the out of the uh, factory. So once again, dropping the ball at the last minute. 
Um, also, to be honest with that one, their claims that it completely eliminated rainbows wasn't actually true. Um, luckily, I've got a friend who suffers from them really badly. I was able to use him as a test subject and uh, and he could see them all the time with it. So um, I think that's just a limitation of DLP, to be honest. Um, if you suffer from rainbows, probably best not to um, not to buy a single chip DLP machine. Then we've got the Samsung C8000, uh, you know, a, a very nice display. But um, I think in this case, using LCD with 3D glasses, crosstalk was a real issue. Um, you know, and I think that's just a limitation of technology. I, I know there may be some LCD TVs I've read about recently that perhaps don't suffer from it as much. But certainly in the case of the uh, C8000, it was a real issue. So another, another case of um, being really good up to a point and then at the last hurdle dropping the ball. Then we've got the Sharp LE821, of course, um, and their their idea of bringing in this fourth uh, uh, fourth pixel, this fourth primary color, uh, yellow, which is actually not a primary color, but there you go. And I know you and I, Phil, have discussed this at, at some length on previous podcasts. But overall, you know, a very capable display, let down by the fact that you couldn't <laughs> you couldn't fix the yellow problem using the CMS. You know, it was inherent in the display. It was just it was basically skewing, no matter what you tried to do. Um, so once again, as we've mentioned before, you know, there's nothing wrong with maybe trying to do something different as a as a manufacturer, but you have to give the user the option to actually calibrate it to Rec 709. And in that particular case, I just couldn't. So yeah, Steve, you you mentioned a lot of the TVs there that you've reviewed, and obviously that reflects exactly what's happened uh, at my end. It's the same thing. There is no such thing as a perfect display. And uh, I know we use the the Pioneer Kuro as our we still use it as our reference uh, screen. Um, but even the even the Pioneer Kuro, you know, it still has its its little niggles, and and we haven't seen any update of that technology in the last two years since they finished building them. So I guess what we're saying here is is that yeah, we've had a good look at the entire gamut of what's available this year from all the manufacturers, but there, there's a niggle with with each and every either technology or individual sets or uh, manufacturers coming up such as Sharp with a new way of doing things, it doesn't really quite work out. So now that we've got that off our chest, we really need to narrow it down to some of the sets that we'd be happy to live with. And um, I'm going to start the ball rolling here because you mentioned the Panasonic straight away um, at the beginning there. And for all its niggles and issues and all the rest of it, I've actually been using a 50-inch VT20 um, for the last sort of four months now as my main display. The 50 hertz issue when you're watching football, it, it's annoying. It really is annoying. But then slip the 3D glasses on, watch some 3D material, and that's the real plus point of, of that set. There's a minimal crosstalk in the image. And even in 3D, you're losing that brightness, but it's still not overly uh, affecting the, the actual watching of the 3D material. Obviously, there's no 3D specification as such at this moment in time, although THXR certifying the LG sets at the moment, and the VT20 is THX certified, but it's only for the 2D picture. But even still, I found the, the color balance on the VT20 to be acceptable. The grayscale, it was off uh, in 3D mode, but it, it wasn't in terms that would draw you out of what, what you were watching. And its 2D performance with Blu-ray material uh, was also uh, very good. When you put it up against everything else that I've seen this year, so it gets a it gets a recommended from me. But um, is it the TV of the year? I think, from my my perspective, of all the TVs that I've reviewed, of the fifteen that I've reviewed this year, 
of, of, I'd probably be happiest with the PX990, notwithstanding the production issue. Certainly the one I reviewed was a great performer. Um, it was really attractive to look at. And to be honest, I think the Panasonic's are not attractive televisions. I thought the uh, the PX990 was was gorgeous. Uh, you know, nice solid build quality. Um, LG had actually clearly been listening to some feedback, not just, say, just from us, but certainly from reviewers generally, in that some of the issues that I'd seen on the um, uh, LE8900 had been had been fixed on, on the PX990. And also some of the issues that uh, had been raised on the PK990 had also have been addressed. So, so I, I thought um, I, I thought that was a great TV, and I guess if I had to to pick one to to to, to have at home, then that would be the one I would probably choose. Having said that, um, you know, at the moment I have yet to review a TV and not put the Kuro back up and think, ah, oh, brilliant, got the Kuro back up. Yeah, so it's exactly. still it's still it's still the king. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this is the this is the thing. I think uh, overall, 2010, it it's been a promising year, which um, we were all hoping it was going to be, but there's also those disappointments there, and not not one manufacturer comes away unscathed this year uh, in terms of absolute picture quality. Yeah, I mean, what what has amazed me though? I mean, at the beginning of the year, CES uh, in, back in January, you know, it was all you know, 3D was going to be launched this year, and everyone was talking about it. What I'm amazed at is how quickly prices in 3D displays have come down. Um, you know, but you can now get a, a, a 3D, you know, a decent sized 3D plasma for, for less than a thousand pounds. That that's that, that's just incredible, really. Um, you know how fast that those prices have dropped. Um, and you know, considering it's a first generation technology, still um, quite you know, the, te the actual performance is very impressive. When you actually watch, um, particularly on a bigger screen, I think the bigger the screen, the better, definitely. You know, I think when it comes to 3D size, really does matter. Um, the more the bigger the screen, the more immersive. But uh, you know, watching some stuff just this weekend, actually on, on the most recent review I've been doing, you know, you, you really get drawn into the uh, into the action in a way that it just doesn't happen with with 2D. And uh, you know, if they can um, solve any any neat teething problems and get more content out, particularly, then really I think 3D does actually have a future, despite some of my misgivings earlier in the year. Oh, I've got to say, I'm still sitting on the fence there, but. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I'm still not convinced with with 3D, and that's having lived with a with a 3D set for the last four months. And um, I still find myself putting the glasses on, starting to watch the the football game in 3D, and then after about half an hour, an hour, the glasses are, are getting on my nerves. I take them off and I switch it back into 2D. Yeah, I must admit, I find using active shutter glasses quite tiring. Um, this this weekend, I've been playing with with passive um, 3D display. Uh, and I definitely found the, the passive glasses a lot more comfortable and less less tiring to wear over long periods of time. But you're right, Phil. I think uh, you do get to a point where you just can't be bothered with the glasses anymore and uh, and end up going back to 2D again. Yeah, and uh, uh, that's not to say that that some 3D material uh, is not great to look at. It is. I mean, Avatar looks absolutely, you know, fantastic. The problem is finding material. I mean, Avatar was designed and shot and carefully you know, composed for 3D. If you watch, the, I was looking at the 3D demo material of Avatar that I've got on the Panasonic disc, and every single shot has really carefully placed depth in the frame, you know, um, lighting and objects in the background. Cameron really thought about it, and it really shows. And unfortunately, most of the 3D material that's out there is not real 3D. It wasn't shot in 3D. It wasn't designed for 3D. Uh, and, you know, and I think Hollywood's in serious danger of killing its golden goose with substandard 
product. Well, I, I don't just think it's substandard product that they're, they're threatening to kill things off with. It's the exclusivity on well, yeah, some of these discs. One. I mean, the, the, the fact that uh, Panasonic has it till uh, Avatar till, till 2012 is an absolute killer. Um, yeah. You know, people that have maybe invested in a Samsung or, a, or, or some other make of 3D TV, the, the only way they can get their hands on that content is to go to eBay and pay over 100 quid for a disc. Yeah, that, 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 I must admit that the exclusivity bit it does, doesn't really make any sense to me at all. Surely you want as much content out there as possible. I mean, if the most successful film of all time, a film that was specifically made for 3D, and you can't get hold of it unless you happen to have a Panasonic display, doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, I know why it is, because Panasonic pretty much funded the development of that film. But uh, even so, it, I mean, you know, for the whole industry, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. Yeah. In- interestingly, though, um, on the on the on my, my comment earlier about... Um, uh, 2D being converted into 3D. I actually went to see Tron Legacy on Friday night, which was shot with 3D cameras and was terrible. I mean, I don't know whether why I can't work out exactly why it looked so bad in 3D. Uh, partly, I think it was the design. Partly, I think it was the way it was shot. I think something was because there was too much fast movement in it. But it just it didn't have any real sense of depth to it. And um, you know, I would have been I was sworn blind if I didn't know already that it was a 2D to 3D conversion. But it actually was shot with 3D cameras, the same ones. In fact, they used an avatar. So um, you know, it just goes to show it's not just a question of you even shooting it with the right cameras. It's also about somebody knowing what they're doing. Cameron knows what he's doing. You know, this is a guy who spent 10 years developing 3D as a format. Um, you know, and has designed a film specifically for that. I think, uh, you, you know, it's not just a question of just pointing a camera at something, even a 3D camera. They really need to actually, you know, create content that that, that, that is enhanced by it uh, and, and adds, adds value in that sense, um, rather than just uh, just thinking, yeah, right, slap a 3D logo on it and make more money at the cinema. You know, it's strange that you say that because actually uh, I've been reading some comments from... Uh... A number of directors of photography uh, who have blogs and so on, and, and every one of them love uh, Tron. So, really? Yeah, so it's quite interesting that, that you've come with, with that point of view and uh, uh, these folks. I thought, I thought it was, uh, I thought the problem with it, I think, looking at it and, and trying to work out why it just wasn't drawing me in, why it wasn't working, was partly it's very dark, uh, lots of blacks uh, in in the computer world. Which I think never really works great with 3D because you know you get no sense of depth, and also it's already dim anyway because of the glasses, so it makes it even darker. It also had this, they also had this brilliant idea where the, the real world stuff is in 2D, and the, and the computer stuff's in 3D. But it starts off with like a little typed message telling you this, because it's going to be the worst beginning to a film I've ever seen. And and then it starts in 3D, then it goes into 2D for the the uh, real world stuff. It says please keep your glasses on, so of course it all looks very dim. And then it goes into 3D. But transition isn't particularly impressive, you know. Just didn't it just didn't draw you in. And also, I think when they a lot of the scenes they they shot in really bright white light, which just flattens faces out anyway. And and I did, you just didn't get any sense of depth or, or three dimensionality at all to, in the film. I found it a, a major disappointment, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so moving back from uh, from our, our discussion, <laughs> and off on a tangent there, talking about three D. Uh, we will come back and uh, our three D TVs of the year. Uh, so you're going for the PX990 from LG as uh, the TV that's impressed you the most, although it still has issues. I th- uh, it seems to be getting better. I've noticed on the on the forums, more recent production models appear to be suffering less from issues that the earlier ones were. So hopefully um, LG have got that sorted out. And uh, I- I'm going to go with the VT20, but I'm also going to add a-, a caveat to that and say, you must demo um, the TV with uh, 2D material, especially football. 
uh, or anything with with fast moving pans. Um, and if you're not too concerned about the uh, the slight fifty hertz issue there, um, then it's it's a good TV. Uh, certainly with Blu-ray and 3D, it, it's an absolutely stonking TV that you can calibrate pretty close to perfection, which you can do with the LG as well. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so that's our um, premium set uh, of the year. But let's uh, go down the price scale uh, a little bit and uh, all-round performers, Steve. Uh, some LCD LED TVs also coming down in price now, Steve. But I think the, the, the one that impressed me the most as, as an all-rounder, you can pick it up for just around about the £700 mark, is the 40-inch uh, C750 from Samsung, um, which, funnily enough, has 3D... Uh, on board as well, and now uh, 3D wasn't particularly uh, mind blowing on the set. There were issues with crosstalk and so on, but but if you if you want an all round great performer, um, it's not going to cost you a, an awful lot of money, um, and it's going to give you half decent 2D pictures, yeah, good half decent 3D pictures, good sort of all rounder, uh, and plasma is not your thing. Then uh, I think the C750 at that price point. I mean, it came in at £1,200 originally. It's now £700 online. Is is a good bargain. And I know you've also picked up on a on an LCD all-rounder as well, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. The, the Panasonic V20 um, LCD display was, it was a great all-rounder. A very nice, accurate, out-of-the-box picture. Blacks could be better, but it, you know, it um, has an IPS panel, uh, which means you, know, you get better off-axis viewing, which is obviously one of the big... Uh, drawbacks of LCD normally, unless you're the unless you're a single person who has no friends, anyone who sits off axis tends to suffer a bit in terms of uh, contrast ratio and color. But um, yeah, I thought it was a good TV, a good all-round performer. I wish Panasonic would sort out their cadence detection because it still fails that, and all their displays do actually, including the VT20. And they really, really, really need to get that one sorted out. But otherwise, uh, I thought it's and you can get it for about under a thousand pounds, and it's a really good, uh, good all-round display. I was also Going back to plasmas for a moment, um, you know, I reviewed the the LG PK350, which you can get for 500 quid, 50-inch plasma, uh, and a great little performer. Um, and I actually recommended some friends of mine who did buy it on my recommendation, and they were really happy. You know, for 500 pounds, you just can't go wrong at that kind of price and get a really nice plasma TV. You know, it's not its blacks aren't as good as the VT20, and then it suffers a little bit from image retention, but not as bad as some of the Samsungs. But, um, but, you know, for that kind of price, a really, really good display. I guess uh, also looking at the plasma side of things, um, we come back to the PX990 again, uh, and we also come back to Samsung with their uh, C7000. Um, both of those sets now well under the £1,000 mark, and, and you reviewed both of them, and you found it very hard to, to find uh, any great differences between them. No, not really. Um yeah, basically, I'd say that the the blacks were very uh, um, on a on a par with each other. Um, not quite as good as the V20, but very good. Um, certainly, in case of LG, there's, they made vast improvements in their black levels compared to the earlier displays. Um, and the only thing, probably criticism I'd have of Samsung was it did suffer a little bit from image retention, image retention, more so perhaps than the than the LG. But both of them, very very good displays, 3D plasmas, 50 inch plasmas for less than a thousand pounds. And that's, just, I mean, like I said earlier on in in the podcast, I can't believe how fast prices on 3D displays have dropped. Um, you know, really incredible. Yeah, there, there's lots of there's some very good uh, you know lower priced TVs out there, and I think that certainly the Samsungs. 530 and the C650 by Samsung um, uh, are good examples of you know lower price displays that are good all-round performers and certainly worth checking out. I think we'll have reviews on at least one of those coming up soon. 
sadly, it's been a year of no premium TVs. And uh, there, there have been some pretenders out there, Steve, uh, one that we didn't get to look at just because... Uh, you know, Samsung, uh, very difficult to get TVs from and uh, our retailer friends um, were not prepared to send out seven grand demo <laughs> uh, TVs over to us. Uh, but that was the, the C9000 from uh, Samsung, which we did get a, a good look at at IFA um, and also over at, at Cedia it was on display. Sadly, that's just a C8000 with... Uh, some fancy gubbins and a nice remote control with with a little TV on it. It's not really what you class as a premium screen, is it? No, no. It was a major disappointment, to be honest, for them. I mean, the kind of money they were asking for that uh, was effectively just a C8000 with all the inherent problems that that had. For example, lots of crosstalk and pretty poor up-access performance and a very uneven backlight. No, I mean, uh, £7,000? No way. <laughs> no way. Um, I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. And of course, I mean, obviously, we're we're heading for CES, and I guess both of us, deep down, secretly harboring a, a real wish here that that we're going to see something that's going to completely blow our socks off and hopefully give us some hope for 2011 in terms of the premium screen, the enthusiast screen. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I'm not sure what's around the corner at the moment, but uh, fingers crossed, we find something at CES that uh, captures our imaginations and gives us something to look forward to. And I guess the the, thing, the the one manufacturer we got to look at, uh, there are a few, but I think the major one, just because of the technology that they bought and obviously taking on the engineers from Pioneer, is, is Panasonic. Um, they didn't quite nail it this year. Um, have you got any hope that they're, they're, they could turn the corner and produce the Enthusiast TV of 2011? Quite possibly. I think, I think we need to understand something in Europe sometimes, which is that, you know, when you consider that... Uh, that the US and Japan use NTSC at 60 hertz. We you know we're in the uh, we're the second class citizens of the AV world, unfortunately. And I guess Panasonic took the decision that they were more concerned about producing a good performer in 3D terms, and less concerned about whether you know what it, how it impacted on on Europe as, uh, and and the power region. I guess um, hopefully, I mean, and the same thing applies when you so often see manufacturers that can't detect 2-2 cadence. So they just don't care. It's just it's not a big enough market for them, I suppose. But hopefully, um, we'll see something from Panasonic that will, you know, address the issues that have been raised this year and take us to the next level. I mean, I, of course, the thing with Panasonic is it's a volume company. Um, and when you're talking about volume companies, they very rarely uh, will develop the time uh, and the technology for a premium screen. But we have seen it in the past with the, with the likes of the Z1 where they, they went all out in terms of uh, not only the design, but also trying to, to make the screen a premium screen. But sadly, uh, the, the Z1 was just a, a V10 uh, panel with a nice design. Um, they didn't actually put the, the R&D work into, into producing something that was a premium screen. Um, but when you look at the, the market as a whole, Steve, you've also got the custom installation market where... You know, Panasonic have been trying to push themselves into that this year with uh, the likes of their 85-inch and 153-inch plasma screens um, based on, on their uh, uh, Neo-PDP technology. You've got to wonder, well, you know, that type of company with that type of resources, and especially with the technology that they've allegedly now got under the belt, you've got to hope that they're, they're going to turn around and at least produce a set, even if it's a five, six grand set. That's what people especially forum members, are looking for. They're looking for that screen that's going to be absolutely the, the next step up from the Kuro. 
Well, you're quite right, Phil. I mean, they do have the capability. Uh, the question is whether there's the where's the but there's the the will to to do it, um, and and maybe whether there's a market to do it. Um, as you say, the the custom installation market, which is very very big in the US, would probably drive that more so than I suspect here. But uh, but uh, fingers crossed, we might see something of interest in in a month's time. And of course, the the other manufacturer that we've got to watch, uh, we've got to give uh, a good deal of respect to is LG. They just keep on getting better every year. Um, they're listening to the feedback. They're listening to what customers want. And I've got to say, across the board this year, there's been as with every TV, the slight niggles with, you know, added processing here and there, and uh, maybe the odd issue with banding and so on. But overall, they they really have upped the standard of their product this year and selling TVs at two grand, and they're actually worth the money. Yeah, definitely. There was one manufacturer that's impressed me this year in terms of its both its intent to try and create um, cutting-edge products and also its willingness to listen to reviewers and, and, and users in terms of feedback is definitely LG. I mean, they, they, they definitely, I mean, I, I'm, I know from reviewing two different displays by them at two different points in the year that they had specifically addressed issues that were raised in the previous review. And they, you know, so full master them for doing that. I mean, that, that's, that's what you want to see from a manufacturer, trying to fix things through software upgrades rather than just denying there's a problem and then maybe fixing it in the next, um, you know, the next um, models that come out the following year. So, so I'm, I've been very impressed with the LG and I am looking forward to seeing uh, what they've got up in store um, for us at CES. But uh, let's move things on to Sharp. Uh, we're not going to dwell too much on the on the fourth pixel. Um, we're not going to dwell too much on the yellow. Everything has to be yellow. Uh, but in terms of uh, their move back into the UK market at the premium end of the market, Steve, uh, they've been absent for the last couple of years. Um, and I guess we've got to encourage them to to keep going and to keep producing product at, at that end of the market and um yes it's their idea it's their marketing but hopefully the the next range of tvs and i believe in the states you can actually switch off the fourth pixel that'd be a great little feature to add into their future tvs could no question that that would be a good idea because not just because of what we think about it but um you know as as a overall the displays are quite good i mean they you know that they're, they're good solid attractive well built um displays that perform really well except for this additional pixel this um this sub pixel um of yellow so if if they could produce a tv that does you know where you can turn that off uh, or or if, uh, better that maybe if you can't turn it off then at least kind of rate it out um then then the overall that's a bloody good um display yeah i, I mean in terms of build quality and so on it's what yeah. you expect a sharp i mean they're absolutely massive in the home country They've let the UK market slip a little bit, and and I think the the fact that they brought the eight two one and the eight one one in this year, uh, the quad pixel, uh, quad what is it they call it, quadron, 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 yes. Um, it was a bold move, but it was a move in the wrong direction, in 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 my opinion. They should have given us choice in terms of picture. I mean, the the one thing about TVs is it has to have picture good picture quality. Otherwise, why buy it? It can have all the bells and whistles on it. It can have internet, TV, and all the rest of it. But if the picture's not right, and you can't watch things as they're supposed to be seen, then what's the point? Um, so a nice big off switch for the Quadron <laughs> technology would be good next year, uh, Sharp. Yeah. And uh, why not give us an accurate preset while you're at it as well that's uh, towards the Rec 709 HD standard? And another company begins with s and who i've been impressed with this year in terms of uh, certainly the build quality compared to last year with sony and um, 
couple of really good models out this year, Steve, that um, had Freeview HD, didn't necessarily have 3D, but the picture quality in terms of certainly the CCFL versions, the 403 I'm thinking of and uh, uh, the 703 that you had a look mm-hmm. at, in terms of overall picture quality and overall features, uh, Sony really did a, a good TV, but as Sony is, it's at the more premium price point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, was, I was very impressed with the uh, 703, which was actually the first display that I reviewed back in May. Um, and you know, it, it, was, it was very well built, very attractive to look at, uh, and uh, produced a very nice image. So overall, I, I, was, I, I get recommended at the time, and, uh, and I was very pleased with it. The only thing I had trouble with um, was it, it, I couldn't quite get the grayscale to calibrate accurately, which I, I think was um, may have just been um, a flaw in that particular TV because because overall I, I know from other reviews that the, uh, the the ones that you'd reviewed, for example, that the grayscale was very accurate on them. So maybe that was just that particular TV. But uh, overall, it, it was a very nice image, and I was very happy with it. And I guess we've got to talk about the whole LED thing. Um, lots of edge LED sets from the likes of uh, Sony, Sharp, and Samsung, and Philips this year. Um, let's talk about Philips. Quite a disappointing line of TVs this year, wasn't it? Yeah, I've only reviewed one Philips, and it was very, you know, it was one of the cheaper ones. Uh, and um, I, I, I really didn't like it at all. Uh, Philips, I know what Philips were trying to make things easier. They had this incredibly simplified remote control that just drove me nuts. Um, they, their, their approach to calibration was basically, here's two images, pick the one that looks best, which is absolutely not the way to do it. If you want to see how to do it, check out the Picture Wizard on LG, which is, which is excellent in my opinion. Um, uh, yeah, and, and the, you know, the, the, the controls for grayscale were just bizarre. You could only just, it was just a, a very disappointing TV and I really didn't like it, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, and that, I think the, you reviewed one too, didn't you? Yeah, the higher up uh, version of that, which was the Edge LED again, and um, that that was a seven six zero five. And again, you know, Philips like to do things their own their own <laughs> way. And really, guys, you know, you don't need all that picture processing on board. You don't need all the, you know, the 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 fancy menus and all the rest of it. You know, if you're going for sim- simplicity, simplicity is easy to do. You know. Uh, it's seven on Rec seven on nine, nice D sixty five white balance uh, in a preset, and just get your picture processing right. You don't need fifteen different layers of different types of processing. It just confuses the the end user. Um, and I guess for us, it's just frustrating because we got to go through all 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 the options uh, when we review these things. And to be honest, I, I I don't know how people can watch images like that with with most of the processing switched on, Steve. Yeah, it, it was it was uh, the, the processing really really was bad, and also they they simplified the menu to the point where I it took me twenty minutes to work out where the picture controls actually were. It was uh, it was just infuriating using it actually. It, it went from it took simplification to to the extreme to the point where it became you know ob- obtuse. <laughs> so yeah. Um, uh, yeah, please, Phillips, just keep it simple, but you know, uh, and accurate, simple and accurate. That's what we want. But uh, I guess uh, coming back to the LED side of things. Um, the, the edge-lit LED sets, they're everywhere now. Every manufacturer's got them. Um, some better than others, Steve, but the, I guess the main problem, and you see them, you see this problem on every TV that has edge LEDs, is the, the screen uniformity and the yeah, fact absolutely. That, that you're going to get patches of, of light. Um, you're not going to get a great deal of detail in the blacks. And 
Uh, apart from, I think, one of the Panasonics that I saw LCD-wise uh, with the LED lights, LED edge lights, um, I've been really disappointed with, with the others that, that are out there. I've reviewed, I think, about five or six edge-lit LED displays, and every single one of them had an uneven backlight, um, you know, not with poor uniformity and, and, and uh, hot spotting and light, like particularly, you know, almost all, as, as you'd expect, really, I suppose, given where the lights actually are, at the edges particularly, but even uh, even in the middle. Um, the TV that I most recently reviewed, the Toshiba SL753, which was a really good display all around, but had the worst backlight uniformity that I'd seen. Just uh, and it was unfortunate because it let down what was otherwise in a really good display. And in a particular case of that one, it wasn't even that thin. So why does she were bothered? I don't know. I mean, obviously people want these super ultra thin displays, but um, personally, you know, you can get a a display that's maybe five or six centimeters deep with a proper backlight. I mean, that's thin enough, isn't it? Surely it doesn't got to be the thickness of a credit card. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean... And 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 you know, the the amount of the the, the the impact it has on the quality of the image is just particularly in dark scenes you know it becomes for me i would i just wouldn't buy one i just would not buy one unwatchable for my opinion you know i mean obviously other people are prepared to accept that for the ultra thin display but personally um you know and and that's why i quite liked lg's attempt to try and do a proper you know a thin display but with the backlight behind the panel um and certainly there was no problems with um with any, you know, the uniformity of the uh, of the LE8900 was was fine. I mean, obviously, as we said earlier, unfortunately, by putting it that close to the panel, they had some problems with banding, where you can actually see the rows of lights. But, but you know, th they were at least were trying to address that issue by you know putting the backlight actually behind the panel rather than at the edges. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and maybe maybe they have cracked it. We'll we'll find out hopefully soon in terms of their new nanotechnology. But. Uh, that was at least an, an interesting attempt at addressing, you know, a thin display with a decent backlight uniformity. Otherwise, every single other one, all, all the edge lit ones that I've seen, um, without exception, have had really bad backlight uniformity. So let's move away from the world of TVs in terms of LCD and plasma. And we've seen one this year, and we are so hoping that, that CES in 2011 is going to show us the way for more of the organic light-emitting diode TVs, OLED TV or OLED, depends on which way you like to say it. Uh, we've had a look at the 15-inch LG, um, Steve. We also had a look at the 31-inch prototype from LG. Mm -hmm. This is the way forward, isn't it? Ah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I know you reviewed the 15-inch, but the 31-inch that I saw, the one I saw in Berlin, looked absolutely fantastic. I have to say, it looked great. It was a 3D display as well, and the 3D looked fantastic as well. It was, I was really impressed with it. I cannot wait to, uh, you know, hopefully in the near future they'll be able to make... I mean, is LG... I know LG are working on them. Is anybody else still working on them? Uh, well, you see, this is the thing, because uh, you go back to just before the recession, and Samsung had one, and Sony had one, and... Uh, they were all pushing for this technology, hit the recession, and LG seemed to be the only ones publicly uh, who are still pushing the technology. I which... think I read earlier in the week that Samsung have got a 50-inch uh, OLED lined up, so maybe they're going to launch that at CES. No, well, I think I read that this week. You think you read that? You I, either I read I'm it or you didn't. <laughs> I, I did. I did read it this week. Whether it was accurate, I don't know. But uh, Well, I suppose but, it depends uh, on the source, but we won't discuss that here. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently, Samsung have also been working on OLED and have a 50-inch, which is, you know, pretty much the holy grail. <laughs> if someone can produce a 50-inch OLED, there's a reasonable price. Maybe, maybe that's the premium display that we've been waiting for, Phil. Maybe that's going to be the answer. 
Maybe, maybe it is. But then again, you know, you're talking about a new technology. You're going to be talking about uh, little quirks that yeah. no doubt are going to pop up there because 15 inch, which is the one that I've reviewed from LG, um, if there was any uh, issues in there, it certainly wasn't projected to me at 50, 15 inches. Take that to 50 inches. Be interesting to see how well that picture holds up, and um, and obviously that there are the manufacturing constraints in terms of you know going for the larger sizes with with OLED. We've been promised larger sizes for the last five years, so be interesting to see how that one develops. So finally, we got a look at the projectors, and it just so happens that our end of the year roundup is uh, kind of slap bang in the middle of the new launch window for most manufacturers and their projectors. But uh, looking back at two thousand and ten. Um, the, the king of the pile, the one that, that's in our demo room and the one that's uh, probably not going to shift until we get the new JVCs in, is the old JVC. The HD 990 was our projector of the year for 2010. Uh, it really was a, a stonking machine. And if you couldn't quite reach up to the £9,000 price tag, uh, the HD 950 was also an absolutely uh, spectacular uh, projector in terms of dynamic range, contrast, color accuracy and uh, it basically has that filmic look now i know you're a, a, an hd 100 owner uh, steve uh, but really jvc have yet to drop the ball when it comes to projection um yeah absolutely phil as, as you say I, I own an hd 100 and i'm a big fan of jvc uh as you say they've, they've yet to drop the ball and every year the projectors just get better and better and better and i saw the 990 9, uh, 950 at the um event that we ran last year I um, was very impressed with that. I've also uh, calibrated 750s and 550s and 350s. Um, all fantastic projectors. And I'm really looking forward to getting a look at the X, X3, X7 and X9. Yeah, well, we were hoping to have the X7 review published before Christmas. Um, but things uh, such as the weather are not helping <laughs> in that regard. Um, so it might be uh, into January before we actually get all three of the new ones through. But certainly in terms of 2010, uh, that's my choice of the year. But also, Steve, there were some other uh, cracking projectors out there uh, last year, and, and certainly some of them are still going into next year as uh, current models. Uh, the Panasonic PTA4000, which was a 3LCD, uh, with the CinemaScope zoom uh, feature. A nice little projector at the price point. I think you can now pick it up for about £1,800. Uh, in terms of image quality, once calibrated uh, and used in a bat cave, absolutely fantastic machine for the money. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I'm really, I love the little the little zoom function, the, the the cinema zoom function. I'm surprised other people don't use it. Um, I think it's a great idea if you want to sort of get that cinema scope effect without actually using an anamorphic lens and the additional cost that comes with that. So uh, yeah, great projector, really good. And I guess the the other one that I have to mention, um, although it has now been superseded, uh, still in in the uh, the range for the time being, and that's the TW fifty five hundred from Epson, uh, which we looked at back in March. Uh, it had an SRP of about four grand, but I believe you can pick it up for a lot less than that now. And again, Epson they they just kill everything bang on every time in terms of ISF calibration, even out of the box, the color performance on their machines not as gary not as in your face as some other manufacturers out there uh, who go with a wider gamut such as uh, mitsubishi yeah um it's interesting because uh when we did the thx uh calibration course there was actually a guy there from epson 
um, and they had one of their projectors on the course, and I was very impressed with its accuracy out of the box and, and the detail and, and, the, and the trouble that they go into uh, at Epsom in order to create you know, accurate images um, for out of the box performance. Uh, and the guy from Epsom was talking about that and demonstrating it to us. And, and yeah, as you say, I was very impressed with them. And finally, uh, we go to Sony. HW15 was a, a very nice entry level XX. SXRD machine, um, round about the £1,800 mark. I uh, believe you can pick them up for about £1,400 now because the new model is out, the HW20. Review coming very soon, folks, on the forums of the new entry level. But uh, if you can get your hands on an HW15, it's still a, a grand little uh, projector. Excellent for, for beginners, those first people who want to get their foot under the under the table in terms of uh, home projection. And finally, I've got to mention the VW85. It is a current model. It's going to go into the next year, even though the VW90 is now out. Um, and again, that projector, Steve, at 5,500, it came very, very close to the... Uh, HD nine fifty from JVC. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that. So, I mean, my only um, concern with Sony projectors has been the dynamic iris, but otherwise, I think they they produce some really good projectors, uh, particularly for the price point. Uh, I suppose going forward, and you can see this better than I can because you've just reviewed one, is um, is how how they perform with three D and whether the image is bright enough. Uh, um, because definitely, you know, a projected three D image is going to be far more immersive than anything you can do on on a TV. Well, so, let's let's just say it's not as bad as the uh, Mitsubishi that we had a look at. Oh at, God, at that CD, was terrible, wasn't it? <laughs> which sadly it, it was, and it's it was based on SXRD technology. Um, in terms of the VW90, uh, you're gonna have to wait for the review, I'm afraid, folks. Uh, oh. It should be it should be turning up tomorrow for review. I have had a look at the HW20. That review is coming up uh, this week on the forums, and for an entry level machine, it. it it continues on from the the 15 uh, in 2010. Um, so some excellent uh, projectors there. And I guess we've got a look at the high end. Uh, we both had a look at LED projectors, um, although mine was round about the turn of the year late last year. Uh, but you also had a look at the, the Miko 50 from uh, Sim 2 and I had a look at the Vivitech. What did you think of uh, the overall performance for an LED? Um, the overall performance of, of the Miko was excellent in terms of, you know, uh, color accuracy, grayscale after calibration, or even before calibration, but certainly after calibration, it was referenced. Um, you know, uh, it, uh, as with all DLPs, it handled motion very well. The I was quite impressed with the way that you could just turn it on and off with, you know, without any cooling down of a fan. Obviously, you know, if you're talking about an LED light source, uh, 30,000 hours minimum. So you're never going to have to change a bulb there. You don't get things like, you know, uh, the brightness reducing over the life of it, et cetera. So, so all those are big positives. Um, as I said, unfortunately, they did ship it um, with, with um, the video's level set incorrectly, which caused it to clip. But, I mean, that, that could be solved with a, with a, uh, with a software upgrade. So that's a big issue. Um, and so, as I said earlier on in, in the podcast, the only thing I need to draw people's attention to is if you suffer from rainbows, then, you know, for God's sake, demo it. Although, obviously, if you're going to spend 20,000 pounds on projector, you should, obviously, you will um, demo it, I'd hope. But, <laughs> you would uh, hope so. But, um, but, you know, I mean, always with Sim, it's the same thing. I mean, yes, it was a great projector. Is it worth 20,000 pounds when you can get the 990 for uh, for half that price? Well, that's for you to decide, I guess. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I think I personally was happy with my uh, HD 100. <laughs> 
Yeah, so um, in terms of projectors, lots of movement in that market coming up for, for 2011. Uh, obviously, if we see anything at CES, you will be the first people to know. Uh, we'll break those stories for you as soon as we know what's going to be showing. I guess Panasonic are one of those companies who we will have to keep a close eye on uh, there, Steve, in terms of projector because they haven't released a 5000 this year, which was supposed to come along. So you can only imagine that they, they are at this present time working on a, a 3D version of LCD, yeah. which is, is going to be difficult for them to do because of the technology. But I, I guess it's the same as the Epson. Uh, if you look at the new R4000, it's using the new reflective uh, LCD, 3 LCD technology. So it'll be interesting to see how that moves on and if they're able to develop that into 3D. But I guess um, that's it for 2010 in terms of what what we've reviewed. I suppose I should make one last mention, actually. Sorry, just uh, honourable mention uh, um, to the only thing I did give a reference review to, which was the AV Foundry Video EQ, um, which which um, absolutely referenced in terms of ability to calibrate grayscale and um, and color gamut. So if if you have a, a projector or even a dis, uh, decent uh, display um, without a CMS then um, you should definitely consider it. So I guess, Steve, to, to wrap up on our best of uh, 2010 podcast in terms of uh, displays that we've looked at this year, we've really got to look forward to 2011 and uh, both of us in less than two weeks, if the weather is okay and Heathrow finally opens its runways, uh, we'll be off to Las Vegas on the uh, 4th of January. Uh, press conferences on the 5th of January and then uh, videos from us from the 6th to the 9th of January from the show floor. Um, along with uh, along with blogs from me on a daily basis. Yeah, we can't forget about Steve's blogs <laughs> on a daily basis. Um, it should be an exciting uh, show, Steve. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I've got high really hopes for it this year. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. This is my first CES, and, and obviously, you know, it's legendary in terms of in terms of in the AV world. So I'm really, really looking forward to uh, to heading off to uh, Vegas in what two weeks' time. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Heathrow opens. Um, <laughs> so I guess all we've got to do now is, um, well, say happy Christmas. and uh, Yep. Happy Christmas to all of our listeners and a very, very uh, happy new year. Yep. I hope it's a, a good new year for everybody out there. And don't forget to join us on the 5th of January through to the 9th of January for all the best from CES. Video-wise, can't forget Steve's blog as well. <laughs> and uh, yeah, make sure you tune in. And we'll be back again next month with another Home Cinema podcast. And hopefully we'll have the whole team with us next uh, time. Because if you haven't noticed on the newsletter this month, uh, we have taken on a new HDTV reviewer. That's Mark Hodgkinson. So, uh, Mark, welcome to the team. Mark will be along for the next podcast. And we may even hear from uh, Mr. Neil Davidson as well next month. So, so for both of us, have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we'll see you in 2011. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.